I remember time in school. Albert? A-L-B-E-R-T. Are we gonna have to stand here all afternoon? No. Today, we're going to concentrate on the Jays. Community Rewatch Episode 2, and we've got a great panel on the show. We've got Andreas uh, Helsko, which is a Danish supposedly scholar or critic of uh, Twin Peaks uh, and uh, other sorts of film and television. Uh, and I'm with 16 by 9, with a scholarly Danish film journal, and I also write books about television uh, in particular. One of many fans who also produce stuff about Twin Peaks. Hi, I'm Maya. I've written for the Blue Rose magazine. I have a blog called Twin Peaks Fanatic. And this is John Thorne. Um, a long time ago, I was co-editor of the magazine Wrapped in Plastic, and I am currently co-editor of the new Twin Peaks magazine, The Blue Rose. So we're going to talk about episode two. This is a big one. This is a big one. <laughs> John, I think you always say that like the first time you saw this episode, you like literally fell off the couch. Is that what you once said? <laughs> that is true. Uh, this is probably the episode that sealed the deal for me, that this was the greatest television show of all time. And yes, it's true. The final act, act four, was playing. I just was on the edge of the couch, and I was just dumbfounded by what I was seeing because nothing like that had ever been shown on, on any, really on any television, let alone network television in the United States. And yeah, I fell off the couch. I slipped off the couch onto the floor, just sort of, wow, I can't believe I just saw that on TV. I think it's one of the most important episodes of the entire Twin Peaks narrative. And Andreas, did you see uh, Twin Peaks uh, in Denmark? Was it showing in Denmark that when you saw episode two? Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, it came to Denmark uh, in November. There was kind of sort of a pause from when it aired in April, the, the pilot episode. It's sort of a, a, a sort of slightly belated, but it came to Denmark at the, in the autumn of 1990, and I saw it back then. But mind you, I mean, I was nine and ten years old back then, so I didn't really understand any part of it. I, I'm not sure that I understand everything now, but uh, everything changed upon uh, my rewatching it uh, later on on VHS tapes and stuff like that. And of course, I would agree with John that episode two is iconic for many, many different reasons, specifically what happens in, in act four or that entire dream sequence. I don't think it's anything has been made in television, really still to this day, that is quite as groundbreaking and strange as that was. Still iconic to me. It's interesting to hear Sabrina Sutherland saying that to David Lynch, the pilot episode and Fire Walk With Me, they are kind of the heart of Twin Peaks because this episode to me includes so many more nuances than the pilot does. Though the pilot is great, this, this has a different sort of surrealism to it and it has the humor, it has uh, everything. Yeah, totally. I sometimes wonder if David Lynch cheats and uses the European ending as- that's the same thing. As, as the pilot, <laughs> yeah. so that he doesn't have to include episode two because he gets the dream sequence. But. Yeah. Maya, what do you think? Oh, it's one of my favorite episodes, not just of the, the first season, of the whole series, really. When I was a kid, the, some most of the original run, but I really remember it more from watching it on VHS. And I think this is the episode that just made me fall in love with Ben Horn, really. <laughs> <laughs> 
and John, you reminded me that this episode was shot out of order. You know, it's funny. I didn't find this this out until not long ago, and I say like a couple of years ago, because Brad Dukes is the one who broke that news, so to speak. It clears up a big, big mystery uh, in regards to season one, and that is in episode three, we have Cooper describing his dream to Harry and Lucy, and he describes the European ending, mm-hmm. but it's not what we saw. Um, there's more detail in it. Especially and of course, Lucy was that's because they shot that before they shot and edited episode two. So Harley Payton, I think, was writing the next episode. And he was just going off what the European ending was. And so that's why there's that discrepancy there. But yes, the episode was shot later in the sequence. Wow. Isn't that something? I feel like it's most likely because of Wild at Heart. I know people like to think that Lynch was making Wild at Heart in season two, or he says it, but he was actually involved with it in season one. John, you reminded me about this, and actually we had Brad Dukes on in 2015. Can you confirm that David Lynch kind of did episode two out of order? I I can confirm that because I have in my possession copies of the actual filming schedules for the first season. Wow. Wow. How that was kind of mapped out was Episode two, which is David Lynch's uh, you know, second episode, was actually filmed towards the end of the first season between episode six and seven. That scene in episode three where Cooper says that uh, there's the discrepancies between episode two and the pilot ending, the Red Room scene, uh, that episode three was filmed about uh, probably a month or two before episode two was actually filmed. So... Wow. That may have been lost in translation with editing, and episode three may have already been cut. Right. Uh, so that's probably where that discrepancy came from. Isn't that but something? Yes, I can confirm uh, episode two was filmed almost at the end of season one. Anyways, let's get into this. The first scene, which is, I love this scene. We have the, the horns, and they're eating at the dining table. Yeah. Andreas, you want to talk about that scene? It's a, I love that it starts off in this wide shot and there's just silence. You just hear the sound of scraping forks the and eating. The diegetic sound of, of them eating that dinner. It's such a great scene. It, to me, it showcases David Lynch's directorial style and then the kind of dynamics and the changes of the show. Because the entire scene, it's like four minutes long, it consists of 30 shots. And the first shot is one minute long, actually, the first shot. Mm. So uh, whereas the last 29, sh- or, or, well, sorry, the first shot is almost two minutes long. So out of those four minutes and 18 seconds, we have one shot, which is sort of half of that length. And that's that wide, slightly high angle shot. That's kind of stagey David Lynchy shot where they don't do anything apart from sort of sit in silence. And then Jerry arrives and then everything changes. The dynamic changes and the, the pacing becomes totally different. And we have that brush, uh, jazzy drum-like sound and it becomes more upbeat. So I just like the that to me illustrates uh, how Twin Peaks can change from one thing to another. It can start out kind of stagey, kind of uh, cinematic, and then it can become very dynamic and funny, and, and then it can turn to something else too. I'm going to give us the first unseen Twin Peaks. It really is an altered version of the dining table scene. Always a pleasure. Power down, Jer. We've got a meeting. Nephew Johnny, don't be forlorn. Things are bound to be better in the morn. Then there's Sylvia who treats me with scorn. She thinks Jerry an absolute thorn. 
Around the horn to little niece Audrey, the horn's firstborn. And here goes Jerry with brother Ben Horn, long gone like turkeys through the corn. <laughs> I love the singing. Anybody have any comments about that? I had actually never read the script before. thought it was great, actually. It was so different from the way it was filmed. It kind of made me... Well, when Andreas was saying about the, the length of the scene... I kind of got the um, that clip from the bonus footage from season three where David Lynch is like, who cares how fucking long the scene is? <laughs> yeah. Like, I couldn't imagine the scene without Ben shoving the sandwich in his mouth. Yeah. yeah. And this is so different. I think it just goes to show about uh, Lynch's improvisational abilities. You just kind of have to have an eye for that, I guess. Near the end, he's saying, and here goes Jerry with his brother Ben Horn, long gone like turkey through the corn. Turkey through the corn is from Firewalk with Me. Yeah, and probably you know a Lynch edition. That Lynch. Well, you know what? I, I, I don't know because that scene, that line was cut. So, but yeah, the line is used in Firewalk with Me. Um, it, it comes from like a folk song. Uh, it has some history and reality that so he's quoting the lines of a song that that might be sung. So it, it may be just simply coincidental. That it appears here, and then of course it appeared in Firewalk with Me. But it is an interesting um, echo from one to the other. Counter Esperanto posted Lightning Hopkins uh, did a song called Long Gone Like a Turkey Through the Corn. Long gone, like a turkey through the corn. Long gone, with my long pajamas on. Yeah, I did a little research on it. Uh, you know, years ago, but trying to find it, the source of it. Uh, and there were multiple, I think what I saw was it was possibly from multiple sources that it could have been a folk song or a song that was sung by, you know, farmers or, or something like that. So yeah. I don't really know. Everything smells like fish around here. And why don't you wash your socks separately? Why don't you drive your truck into a tree? I got an idea. Tomorrow's Sunday. Let's stay up late tonight and bicker. What was that FBI man doing up here today? Oh, nice fella. Asked a few questions. About what? Well, he talked to Josie mostly. I had a problem with a fish. Took a liking to my percolator. What did he talk to Josie about? Well, why don't you ask her? Did they talk about my brother at all? Andrew? How many brothers do I have? I heard them mention him. The accident. What about the accident? No, the usual. How no one found his body. Mostly they just talked about Laura. How she was up here the afternoon of the day she died. Didn't he want to talk to us? I talked to him. Real nice fella. Did he express any interest in talking to me? Yeah, but we told him you were on your world tour. He should contact your press agent. Take your boots off my bed and go to your room! Didn't want to get mink oil on my bedspread.
Well, there's a couple of interesting things to note. They cut all the Andrew Packard stuff out when they aired it. And uh, it may have been just simply because of time. But also, there's a lot of detail there, really, about the body being missing. And there's, I don't think they wanted to clutter up the story with extra mysteries. And so they kind of put that in reserve for season two, the whole Andrew Packard thing. And then the other thing is, you'll see it throughout this entire episode, the script had scenes in a completely different order than the actual episode does. When they shot it and they edited it, they moved things all around. And so that scene that you just played was supposed to take place in Act One. And they don't, I think it doesn't take place in the televised version until the end of the episode. So it, it adds some confusion as to the time frame of when things are happening. But this episode in particular was really rearranged from the original scripted order of of scenes. Yeah, John, that's a great point. They're having this conversation and the the actors who are putting this on is the Bickering Peaks team, Lindsay and Aiden. So the scene though between Pete and Catherine, they're talking and it's like what what did the FBI agent want this this morning or today? And you know, the way we've seen the show is actually a new day. So it is conf- right? I think it's it's kind of confusing. Yeah. It's actually a mistake. They say, what did the FBI agent want here today? But And if you look at the time frame, Cooper had been there the day before. Right. But the scene was supposed to take place in Act 1, which was the night of the day before, you know, the previous night. And so it adds some continuity errors, minor, minor stuff. But Twin Peaks was you know, very deliberate about being exact and, and, and clean about, mm. you know, every episode took place in a day and you can kind of track it. And this one throws a little bit of a wrench into the continuity works. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it works better at the end. And I, depending on how you count these different scenes, I think it ends up being uh, in the televised version, uh, number 16 out of 80, 18 or something like it. But they count it differently from what I do. But it's definitely at the last act, as, as John said. I'm happy with them reserving Andrew Packard or that part of the story for later. While it might have had pragmatic reasons, it works better. It's kind of a soapy uh, fake departure like story either way so it's great that that's sort of reserved for a later episode I think I think it works better in the televised version than in the script Diane 817 quick note definition of a Chinese word Koro that's the name of Mrs. Josie Packard's dog mixed breed I believe the word is Mandarin I'm sure I know what it means but I can't lay my hands on it exactly 60 feet 6 inches perfect what do you think he's up to? Beats me. Sixty feet, six inches. That's the distance from home plate to the pitcher's mound. Kinda interesting, huh? You'll recall that on the day of her death, Laura Palmer wrote in her diary the following entry. Nervous about meeting Jade tonight. Remember also that under the nail on the ring finger of Laura's left hand, we discovered the letter R. In addition, under the nail on the ring finger of the left hand of Teresa Banks, the girl who was murdered last year, we discovered the letter T. Today, however, we are going to concentrate on the J's. Well, it, it's one of the great scenes of the of the episode. I mean, the whole thing is hilarious and mesmerizing, the whole technique that Cooper has. And it adds so much to the character of Cooper. You know, this is sort of where we get the sense that he is more than just a, an FBI agent, but that he has um, almost supernatural abilities. And I say, and I want to emphasize almost because there's there's an otherworldliness to him that sort of gets introduced here. And then just, I guess, one final comment. Of course, the scene you just played explains why the letters R and T are circled on the chalkboard and we never see them circled from one scene to another. It's another continuity error because that piece was 
was cut from the full scene. I really love the whole fingernails uh, like storyline. I feel like they could have done so much more. They could have been more killings and we could have spelled out Robert. Robert. <laughs> <laughs> the scene is also ingenious in the way that it sort of um, it reintroduces different characters in sort of a seamless way. It's It's definitely done that way or edited that way in order for us to remember who the different cast members are. I mean, and this today you wouldn't do it that way at all, but it's kind of the way that they sort of in an ingenious, humorous fashion recapitulate different things and or reintroduce different characters through small flashbacks or shots. It's just, there's an ingenuity to that that I quite like. It's a great, great scene. Yeah. cut up into different sections in the actual televised version. Well, I, I actually just watched the episode yesterday. I don't know why, but it's kind of stuck out to me, like all the, the weird nuances of it. Like, for example, Cooper has Hawk put on oven mitts. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, but I kept thinking, like, he seemed, Cooper seemed so um, excited by the the experience of, of doing this for, for them. I I know, I don't think that in any way they had any clue back then, but it kind of seems when you rewatch it now, like, I don't know, maybe there was something uh, kind of like what John said, supernatural or otherworldly going on with him for sure. Shelly, it's Norma. Oh, hi, Norma. I was just about to call you. Are you all right? I'm fine. I'm fine. Actually, I'm not feeling too good. I think it may be a touch of the flu. Shelley, didn't you have the flu last week? Norma, I'm okay. I just can't come in today. I'm worried about you. Thank you, Norma. I'll be fine. I just need to rest. You want me to bring you anything? No, no. I've got everything here I need. But thanks anyway. I hope you'll be okay down there. Heidi should be able to work my shift. She shouldn't mind too much. I know she needs the money. Shelley, don't worry about it. You work on getting better. Norma... I know you always feel like you have to drop by, but don't drop by. I'm okay. I'll see you later. Each day brings a new beginning, and every hour holds the promise of an invitation. Emerald, please listen to reason. Reason? Reason? There is no reason. Jared's your father. And Melanie's my sister. And she's my wife. (sighs) Your father loves you. Poor Jared. He's been out of the hospital less than a week. Ha! He wasn't even sick. Yes, but those pains were real. You shouldn't have spoken that way to Melanie. She was with him at the hospital night and day. She was exhausted when you spoke. She didn't mean to hurt you. We'll see who's hurt. Chet, you're a fool. And Melanie's a fool. And Jared's the biggest fool of all. So what does that make me? Montana! I knew you'd be back. Invitation to love will return. Uh, that's <laughs> invitation love. Am I the only one that enjoys invitation? Yeah, love? I, I love it too. That's good. It's so funny. We, you, you know who didn't like invitation to love? That was David Lynch. <laughs> he was he was not. 
from what we've what we've heard anyway through other folks who were involved with the show that Lynch was was not really interested, let's put it that way, in the invitation to love sequences as much. And I think there's not much in this episode. There's just a very little bit and all of that material that you just played was never shown. Yeah. And I think what they wanted to do in this part of the show, having you know, cutting back and forth between various characters or cutting to various characters in the town, all watching the same episode of Invitation right. to Love at the same time. And so it sort of served to weave everyone together within the town. And then they didn't really do that. And they did it in other episodes, but in this episode, they they cut all of that. We, we do have Shelley reacting to one part of Invitation to Love in this episode, don't we? Every day brings a new Invitation to Love and she says, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, right. And that, <laughs> that scene between her and Bobby, she says, something that he'll he'll kill us both that reminded me totally of uh, of Mulholland Drive actually and so and that uh, scene where they where they rehearse a scene and we have this line he'll kill us he'll kill us both it's almost mm. the same line spoken between Bobby and Shelley and that also references that metafictional show that uh, invitation to love almost in the same way that Mulholland Drive plays around with uh, sort of melodramatic elements. But uh, but I'm happy that uh, I didn't know that they were going for invitation to love as a much bigger element. If that was what they were going for, I'm happy that they chose not to. It's sort of more subtle this way. It's funny when it's there, but it's I'm happy that it's not there all the time. This is very much Mark Frost, and he directed all of the invitation to love scenes. Hi. I'll be right there, Dad. We're going over to get a softy freeze. Dad, when have I ever missed a softy freeze? Maybe Audrey would like to join us. Do you all go for a softy freeze every Sunday? Every Sunday. After church since Donna was a little girl. We enjoy it so much. Hope you can join us. Nice to see you in church, Audrey. I wanted to come down because of Laura. What do you mean? I didn't think you even liked her. There were things about her I didn't like. But she helped take care of my brother. And I guess I sort of loved her for that. That's why I'm here. That's really nice of you. I knew how close you two were. I wanted to tell you how sorry I am. Thanks. You take care. Why don't you come with us for a softy freeze? I don't know. Really? Sure, come on, they're really good. Okay. And if we're really lucky, maybe my dad will tell a story about the night the porcupine got into the hospital. <laughs> Oh, I'd like to hear about that. Yeah, this scene was sort of the original Donna-Audrey scene that Lynch essentially reworked into the double R diner scene that we all know, that classic scene of Audrey dancing, which Lynch added, I assume, while you know he was making the episode. It wasn't part of the script. And in the scene you just played, they really kind of make... Audrey and Donna more chummy and friendly, uh, as if maybe there's the indication that they're going to become, you know, a team. And, and mm. there is some of that in season one. But the scene that we end up seeing, of course, in the actual televised episode, Audrey is a far more curious and uh, mysterious character than she's in this uh, original scripted scene. She's just uh, a little more simplistic. I think it goes to just it's another illustration of what Maya said that that David Lynch is is almost best when he improvises. That's the best part of the scene is actually when she starts starts dancing and and she's mentioned many times over that this was written for her just as John said. But she's also told a lot of times Sherilyn Fenn that what Lynch would do is he would stand off screen uh, pulling her shirt in order for it to sit tighter. Right. So. Uh, <laughs> 
Is that right? <laughs> There's an element of eroticism uh, and sort of essential element to the entire scene, also with the coffee and stuff, that's not there in the original script. Absolutely love that scene. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they talked about the tr- in the actual episode that they're having dinner at the Haywards with Donna and James. They mentioned the church, and then when they're in the diner, Audrey dances. Donna does say to her, I saw you in church. I think it's way better the way they actually filmed it at reading this now. One other thing, there's there's a great, the great, great line from Audrey, which was not part of the script, where she says, isn't this music dreamy? It's such a, a nice foreshadowing of the dream that will come yeah. at the end of this episode and the line, there's always music in the air. It's, it's, it's really interesting the way Lynch is integrating some of these elements, maybe instinctually, without even you know, really thinking it all the way through. Um, he just knows how it has to be. Fresh pot. I could use it. Hard day. They don't get any easier. How about you? Had a girl sick today. Double shift. Been on my feet since breakfast. So much for a day off. Got an appointment with Hank's parole officer in the morning. What's that all about? Don't know. Guess I'll find out. When's Hank's hearing? Tuesday. Norma says that I had a girl sick, and it's like, there aren't that many girls that work at the Delar at one time, and I'm sure Big Ed is a regular that he would know who Shelly is. Like, he could yeah. say Shelly's sick today. <laughs> I had a girl sick. Reading this as we're going through, it's so weird to me. It's so different than the episode. And I love when Ed comes in the diner and raves his hand. And, and Doesn't he do that in season three as well? Yeah. Tomorrow we interrogate the trucker Leo Johnson and Dr. Lawrence Jacoby. Right. We'll see what Albert and his team have after examining Laura and the abandoned train car. Right. Funerals tomorrow. Right. No change on the girl at the hospital. Run it. Still in a coma. Is it always this temperate at night? This time of year. This is so pleasant, and the humidity's so low. In Philadelphia, sometimes you get a heaviness in the air like wet flannel pajamas. Why do you think they call it the Great Northwest? Harry, you're preaching to the convinced. Some of these scenes, I can see why you cut them, but like they're all like, oh, and tomorrow we're going to have the funeral and this is going to happen. <laughs> and we forgot about that girl who's still in a coma, but she's still in a coma. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, that was just that was exposition and reminder dialogue for the audience. You know, don't you know, here's what's going on. We're not addressing it this episode, but don't forget. <laughs> it's all there. <laughs> Scene eight, we've got the Great Northern Hotel Bar and Cooper is going to run into the Horn Brothers. Mr. Horn, Benjamin Horn. FBI. This is my brother, Jerry. Happy to make your acquaintance. I must say, this is one handsome and comfortable hotel you have here, gentlemen. Thank you. We aim to please. Do you get a lot of the vacation dollar up this way? Yes, we do. But of course, never as much as one would like. Nothing a large resort wouldn't fix. A large resort? Is that Jerry with a J? Yes, it is. I believe I've met your daughter, Mr. Horn. What a charming and attractive girl. Audrey? You must be very proud. Well, I'll say goodnight. Nice to have met you both. Sleep well. I will. The bed is almost exactly the right degree of firmness. Yeah, Cooper is is curious a little bit about Jerry Horn because of uh, the J, but you know, Jerry Horn was never really a, you know, real valid suspect because he was he was out of town. So he has good alibis. I think they just kind of moved past that little subplot of because later on in this script cooper asks diane to investigate jerry you know they may be going to pursue that a little bit but they decided not to they have Mm. enough suspects i guess yeah exactly yeah Yeah. in episode one there was kind of hints at uh in the script of Ben Horn seeing Audrey and Cooper together, like he passed them. And then in this script, Cooper wants to say, oh, you've got a very attractive daughter. It's very <laughs> off-putting. That's so off-putting. If, if Cooper said that about a teenage girl, uh, I'd been like, 
That's a little off. That's a little off. I know. I'm glad they took that out. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound like him when he says that. When the pilot, he's like, who's the babe? Maybe he was always into the girls. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cooper, Cooper is quite different in the pilot, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he he does change quite a bit during the first couple of episodes. He has sort of a slightly more cynical, sarcastic side in the in the beginning too. Yeah. He becomes more uh, funny in a different way, uh, and, and sort of a more uh, friendly, heartwarming, uh, charismatic fashion. Whereas he's also charismatic in the opening, but slightly more sarcastic, I think. So to, when coming uh, to episode two, we've arrived at the Cooper that I think we've all fallen in love with. Yeah, true. true. Yeah. The next one is going to be Leland and Sarah in their home. Yes. Yes, Madeline, dear. We'd appreciate it a great deal. The funeral's at two o'clock. All right, we'll look for you around noon. Thank you, dear. Drive safely. Sarah? 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 That was cousin Madeline. Donald's girl? That's right. Knees, Madeline. Is she here? She's driving in tomorrow for the service. Oh. I'm going to go downstairs for a while. All right. <laughs> so. What was that? Well, that's what they mean, them taking pills. Oh, and it's funny okay. in the script. It ends with uh, Leland starting to break down, and he, he waits till Sarah leaves the room, and then he takes a pill, and oh, he's starting to. He seems right. like he's starting. He's starting to break down. Like it seems like it's interesting in the script. It makes it seem like he he's very strong. And he's there for his wife, but it's starting to take a toll on him. And I'm sure we got to talk about this at some point in this episode. He really does start to lose it. Yeah. <laughs> I also thought it was interesting they mentioned Donald's girl for Maddie. And actually in the show, I believe it's actually Sarah's sister Beth's girl. So it's interesting. I, I'm guessing Donald would have been on Leland's brother or something like that. Or I don't know. But it's, it's an interesting scene. Uh, the sense is that Sarah Palmer isn't really too familiar with Maddie. She's mm. like, oh, you know, she, she has to sort of confirm it's Donald's girl. Madeline's father's name is Donald. And so I guess we have both the parents' name now. There's one funny thing about this scene, the way it was scripted. In the script, it takes place uh, after Cooper has gone to bed at the Great Northern. Yes. And Cooper tells Diane on his tape that it's 1.18 a.m. and he's going to bed. And, and then we cut to Leland talking to Maddie on the phone. So I guess the, the Palmers are late night people, I guess, is what it is. <laughs> so, you know, it's a 2 a.m. call with your niece is, is not unusual. It's just funny how they had put times in and, and had different scenes placed in, in sequence. And um, they don't really make a lot of sense. So... Mm. And John, so that's why I purposely changed the order at the end here because it didn't make any sense to me. It's like, boy, it seems like the, the Palmers should be going to bed and then we cut to Cooper in his bed or in his bedroom getting yeah, ready for bed. Yeah. So, so this is the last scene. The last unseen scene here is uh, Cooper in his room. Diane, one eighteen a.m. Long day, turning in. Albert and his team should have something for us by morning. Run a check for me on a Jerry Horn, Twin Peaks businessman. Jerry with a J. H-O-R-N-E. Nothing specific. Call it an instinct. Check that. Intuition. An instinct is when you get hungry. 
Let's also get background on a local psychiatrist, Dr. Lawrence Jacoby, and wants and warrants on a truck driver, Leo Johnson, also local. The air here is as fresh and crisp as a cracker. You don't sleep, you slumber. Good night, Diane. It feels like they use some of the dialogue for uh, the Twin Peaks cassette tape that came out over the, like, the, the between the first season and the second season. That, but hmm, that's interesting. I don't know. It, it could be they pulled some of this dialogue since they cut it and then put it on that tape. I'd have to check that. Yeah, is it you don't sleep, you slumber. Are there any clues that Leland was the killer? So Brian had not seen, when we first did this, we watched this together, Brian hadn't seen the show. No. So you, I couldn't talk about this, but is there any scenes? We, the only scene that we have of Leland, I think, is him in the, the Pennsylvania Six Five Thousand yes. scene. <laughs> uh, uh, is a is a clue for sure. I know that uh, that the last part of it, of course, wasn't supposed to be the, the the way it ended up being in the televised version. But look at the chevron pattern on his jacket, uh, and then we cut to the to the red room, room afterwards with the same pattern. That's the scene that comes directly after the Pennsylvania 65000 scene. And just look at the way that it changes from this crazed, hysterical, uh, sort of maniacal kind of uh, mood when we hear Glenn Miller's music and then uh, to the end of the scene where we cut in on Leland and we have this uh, uh, slightly more sad version of, uh, of Laura Palmer's theme mm -hmm. and he you know, smears blood all over her face. I know that that... Of course, that's changed from the script, but at the end of it, in, in the in the televised version, I think going back to that, that certainly looks as if that was a clue all along. And uh, Sarah Palmer's, uh, well, what's going on in this house and stuff like that seems almost to sort of indicate that things are bad inside that house, right? I suppose that seems symbolic when going back to it, more so than it, than it did when I first watched it. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I just finished a short piece about the Palmer house for Blue Rose, and I was going back to that scene that we were just talking about because I was curious about the line that Sarah Palmer says, you know, what's going on in this house. That line is not part of the script. That line was never scripted. It was something that Lynch added when they were shooting it. And Sarah Palmer says it twice. And it's clear, I think, well, I shouldn't say it's clear, but there's 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 an indication anyway that Lynch wanted to convey a wrongness about the Palmer household. Obviously, you know, things are, are happening. There's a lot of emotion in the house. But having Sarah say that line so frantically twice, what's going on in this house, gives you an indication that there is more to that uh, environment than simply having had Laura been killed recently. There was some, something else was going on. I had never noticed that. I never knew that until just a couple days ago, that that line was not part of the script. And I think it's important. Yeah. yeah and then he says, we have to dance for her. And I mean, mm -hmm. that, that is sort of, a, it to me looks like a classic dance macabre that sort of you would have in literature when you want to indicate that there's something bad has taken place, that a killing has taken place, you, you dance for the dead, right? Yeah. There's sort of a, an interesting connection. He's connected to it, and definitely those lines, also the line that she says later on in, uh, uh, during the funeral, right, when she says, don't ruin this too. Yeah. There is yeah. a sense of, of wrongness connected to, to Leland and that household. I think I would agree with John there. The blood on the actual picture frame there, I can't remember if that was an accident, if if somebody, one of the actors actually accidentally cut themselves. Do we, do we know? Yeah, Ray Weiss did. I think it was Grace Zabriskie. Okay. I think Grace Zabriskie, or at least that's a story I heard, that she 
breaks. If you watch the scene, you can see Leland look down yeah. when the glass breaks. Like he sees that something and he keeps going. And I pretty, I'm pretty sure I'll have to go back and check. I don't want to say for sure, but I think Grace Zabriskie's the one who started to bleed, and they just kept going. And then after when Lynch called cut, he came over and sat with her and held you know, a gauze on her hand. I'm sure she was okay. Do you remember it differently, Andreas? I, I'm going to well, go look up. No, no, well, I didn't remember it differently. I just, I heard it differently. I, because okay. Bartolomenci told me that it was Ray Weiss who had that experience. He could just remember that wrong. I, I but just pulled out the interview with Grace Zabriskie. I've got it right here where he, she says, something happened during that scene where Leland and I dance and we fight over the picture. It's one of the things I will never forget about David Lynch. We were fighting over the picture and the glass actually broke. I cut myself. David didn't realize it. No one said cut. And so I kept going. At the end of the take, David saw that I was wounded and he came and got me, sat me down on the couch, sent for ice. And I swear to God, he sat there for 20 minutes holding my hand above my head. Wow. So that, yeah, that was wow. from an interview we did with, with Grace Zabriskie. I pulled that out of the Essential Wrapped in Plastic. Such a handy book. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, that's a great book. <laughs> and, you know, rewatching that, it makes me think about season three and you have Sarah taking the, the picture and, and stabbing mm. it and there's glass going everywhere. And it's interesting. I don't know if I thought about it until rewatching wow, it. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, she's, kind of, she's smashing again. It's excellent. I never connected that. That's perfect. Yeah. It's the same picture, right? It is. I yeah. think it is. I think yeah. it is. I have to rewind. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to talk about the Red Room? I mean, that is... No. That is, <laughs> Nobody no. wants to talk about that. <laughs> Maya, do you want to talk about the Red Room? Sure. I was fascinated with that scene, actually. I thought it was... I think the mystery that it creates, the weirdness and all of it, it was sort of the, the thing that made me just want more and more of Twin Peaks. This scene... Uh, was improvised for the European ending, and it was never scripted. It was something they just needed to tack on so that they could sort of have a complete movie to put in the European market. And then they repurposed it as the dream sequence in episode two. And then they basically said, well, you know, it's a code we have to crack, which of course it wasn't. There was no code there. It was just, again, improv. And this scene, which was made up on the spot, essentially drives the rest of the entire Twin Peaks narrative until part 18 of season three. Wow. This is the thing that's going to direct and redirect the, the story. And it was never designed to be that. It fascinates me that the entire narrative, Firewalk With Me and everything, that the core of it is all here in something that Lynch kind of made up on the spot. And do you think yeah. it's partly because of Mark Frost? I mean, because, I mean, so Lynch has this creative world that he's creating, but then you have Mark Frost who's like, okay, I need to keep this going episode to episode. And yeah, they were trying to make meaning. I was trying to sort of craft the story to kind of match that dream. And, you know, some of it's a little clunky, especially when we get into, uh, you know, season two and they try to explain what the gum is and every little thing is trying to you know have them have some meaning but yeah that's exactly right i think they had that footage they wanted to use that footage they said well this is going to be the, the the core element of you know cooper's gonna ha have a code he has to crack and so that's you know you see elements of the dream now pop up in all the episodes that follow particularly in season one. My arm's been back. It's the twine that they have to go to the veterinarian, you know, mm -hmm. the convenience store. And it's all, it, it all kind of is thrown in there. It doesn't take away from it. It's all fascinating, but it wasn't uh, really planned out. 
think it's the most iconic scene perhaps of the entire show and and uh, but i also quite like when we then get back to the hotel room and cooper he uh, wakes up or is he perhaps slightly in a, in, a, in a sleep mode still and his hair is standing on end and he says <laughs> Oh, it can wait till morning, which is not in the script, that particular line. Yeah. That particular part of the story made me think so much of Shakespeare. Shakespeare, who's been paraphrased earlier in the same episode, uh, his mm -hmm. sonnet number 18 is the one Ben Horn uh, recites uh, for Blackie, right? Uh, Shall I compare thee to a summer's day and stuff like that? Mm -hmm. And then at the end of it, when his ear is standing on end, that reminds me so much of Macbeth who is now coming to terms with the fact that he wants to kill King Duncan. And he says something akin to, why do I yield to the suggestion whose horrid image doth unfix my hair? It's as if, uh, <laughs> now, nah, is, is, is Cooper, what kind of a suggestion is he yielding to? I mean, why is it that it can wait till morning and he's snapping <laughs> his fingers? There's something so cool about that ending. And it gives sort of a complexity and an ambivalence to Cooper just like the dream sequence is a better solution than what was scripted. It sort of gives it all this hesitation and surrealism that it wouldn't have otherwise have had, I don't think, this episode. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I mean, the ending after Cooper wakes up is simultaneously funny and frustrating. I remember watching it the first time it aired, you know, 28 years ago, thinking, oh, my gosh. I mean, Cooper knows. You know, at that point, we don't know what's. I didn't know what was coming in in a week, and Cooper Cooper knows the finally you know, he's got the answer, and um, I, mean, I couldn't wait for the next episode to find out, and then they pull that rug out from under us and say he's forgotten it. So. That's kind of brilliant in a way, though. I kind of love how they did. Reading the script while we were doing this, I have to admit. I and not to be negative in any way, but it really sucked. <laughs> so it's so much better. And there's so much that they put into it that's not in the script. I couldn't even imagine if it had actually been filmed that way, if it would have had the same impact at all. Oh, I think that's exactly right. I think if if this episode hadn't been filmed the way it was, if Lynch hadn't done what he did with it, if this had been the episode that they had scripted, the show might have flattened out a little bit. But this lit the spark. As I said, it drove the rest of the, the whole story. So, yeah, I agree completely. And on the other side, it seems like it probably scared people off. Like, I, either you, you fell in love with Twin Peaks or yeah. you totally, like, it's like, what the hell is this show? And they probably <laughs> ran away from it. But it's like, if after this point, you basically decide, are you going to be with Twin Peaks or are you not going to be with Twin mm. Peaks? But it's interesting that if you read, like, any television historical book, uh, still any kind of frame grab from that particular scene will be in that book. Because it's it's become, like, the iconic example of when television changed. That was that that was that iconic scene where not only did it become more surreal, but it also became all about aesthetics. And when I agree with Maya quite a lot, actually, I didn't like the way it was written in the script with the basement and Killer Bob explaining stuff. I couldn't imagine what that would look like at all. This is so much also about a look and a tone and a feel and an atmosphere uh, and a mood that it doesn't look or seem that way to me when reading the script at all, actually. You know, some of the power of the dream comes from when they cut 
out of the dream to Cooper sleeping in the bed, you know, as it transitions from one sequence of the dream to the other. And, and I think Cooper's almost restless. He's almost struggling with what his mind is showing him. Those are really, they're short little clips, but they're fascinating uh, transitional pieces. Um, and so we keep coming back to Cooper sort of struggling with this this thing he's experiencing. John, for Wrapped in Plastic, and you, and you can also read it in Essential Wrapped in Plastic book, you interviewed Michael Anderson. And I think he said about how like he wanted more information about the Red Room. And he's like, he's like, so what's before this scene? And what's after this scene? And I think Lynch is like, there is nothing. There's nothing before and there's nothing after. And then he and then he think he says, yeah, you know what? He he was right. There was nothing more that it was its own thing. It, it's 25 years later, but there was no there was nowhere else to go. You don't have to know anything in the before. You don't have to know anything in the future. I don't know. I think that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, obviously interesting to get, you know, his take on on what that experience was like. And I think he said, Michael J. Anderson said, I um, I never thought that that would ever air, that would ever show anywhere. <laughs> you know, that, that would just never, it was just something we did, you know, one afternoon and it would never show. Uh, and of course it did. And uh, as Andrea said, it's one of the most important scenes in the history of television. So, you know, now that we've seen season three, can we go back to episode two and kind of look at it in a different way? Well, does it sort of suggest that Cooper is the dreamer? Yeah. Or kind of always was? Yeah. I think so. I think so, too. I am still working on that. <laughs> I'm still thinking about. It. Uh, I yeah, it's it's fascinating. I mean, like I said, it's, it's that dream sequence is sort of the inspiration for the rest of what follows. I think that Lynch and Frost may have gone back to these early episodes, and you know, in some way, we're trying to perhaps redefine Cooper uh, for season three from evidence that they're seeing in these various uh, episodes. But, you know, I'm going to have to think about that for a long time. Did Lynch actually film any new Red Room scenes, or do you think it was all taken from the uh, European version? I would doubt they filmed new stuff for yeah. episode two. I don't remember that uh, any of the things we watch in episode two are not in the European pilot, actually. But I remember when I first saw that, it suddenly becomes flat because of that ending that's attached to it. That's closer to what I think is scripted here in episode two. What I like about Twin Peaks very much is that constant hesitation, that I don't know whether something should be understood as as sort of uh, symbolic or psychological or, or potentially supernatural. And that hesitation is, is removed in the European pilot. I think all of the shots that we see here in episode two were filmed then. And, and didn't Dwayne Dunham talk about that a little bit, about him editing late at night and those rushes coming in yeah. uh, that he had edited, and he didn't, and and he hadn't, he didn't know about those rushes that came in, and then he didn't know what to do with them. That became the dream sequence that that Lynch had shot, right. uh, because of the European pilot. I think all of it was shot back then. When I watched it again, and this is one of the episodes that I've watched uh, the most, I think, from the original series. There are so many things that resonate with the rest right. of his work, from small, small, small details to sort of uh, whole lines and and even entire exchanges. There's the switchblade uh, sound with Bobby and Mike and uh, and Leo. That totally reminded me of Wild at Heart, which was made at that same time, right? Mm -hmm. Or came out at yeah. that same time. There are so many elements, like the flashlight 
uh, low-key mm. element also in that same scene. Oh, yeah. I think reminiscent of the ending of Fire Walk With Me. In the script, we are supposed to, in that Pennsylvania 65,000 scene, we're supposed to, at the end of it, move in on the fire, it says. And that totally reminded me of other stuff that he's done, other parts of Twin Peaks, but also the classic scene from Straight Story, where he talks with that character. So there are so many things in this entire episode that I suppose it becomes a filter through which I watch it, but it just resonates so wonderfully with the rest of his work. And I think through serendipity and intuition or instinct, uh, I think John called it right, David Lynch is able to turn what is an interesting script into a much better episode. You know, I'd, I'd like to just add to a little bit of what Andreas brought up about Bobby and Mike and Leo in the woods scene. Sometimes we we pass over it and we forget, but you know, it's got one of the great mysteries of Twin Peaks in it. That scene too is, is who was behind the tree mm. in the woods. It's not addressed in the script and i don't even think it's in the script i can't remember specifically if it's in the script uh, no it's not i'm looking now at, at some notes i have it's not there so that's something lynch put in there mm. this this figure that steps out from behind or from behind or to behind the tree some of the mystery may be gone we may know who the actor was but i don't know if anywhere in the narrative was ever defined who right. who that was supposed to be back there it's very strange because uh, Bobby reacts to this uh, character or figure, uh, and but Leo's reaction uh, to Bobby's reaction, we don't know whether that's mm. just sort of him wanting Bobby to shut up or yes. thinking, don't worry right. about it, divert his attention. Leo doesn't even look that way, so either right. Leo knows. Right who that person is and doesn't want uh, Bobby to talk about it, or he doesn't even think there is a person and he thinks Bobby's just trying to divert his attention. Yeah. And I've always wondered who that character was, and and I don't think it's ever explained, is it? No, I don't, no, think, so. I don't think so. And then, like, who would we guess? Anyway, I mean, when I was younger, I used to think, oh, maybe it's Ben Horn, maybe it's Leland. I thought it was Leland. Yeah. I, I, I thought I heard somewhere along the line, and then this is all rumor, and I can't remember who told me, that it was Ray Wise. I'm not saying it was Leland Palmer, but it was Ray Wise who was behind the tree. Really? Um, and again, to everyone who's listening to this, I can't remember who told me that. I don't know if it's true. So don't you know start thinking, oh, we solved the problem because uh, I don't <laughs> – even if it was Ray Wise, it didn't mean it was – what, the, the figure was not supposed to be identified. It was yeah, supposed to be someone mystery, that we couldn't right. tell who it was. Yeah. So that may be something that Lynch thought, I'll come back to that you know, somewhere down the line. Or isn't it interesting that we have this extra threat in the wood? Because that's an element of Twin Peaks, right? I right. mean, mm-hmm. who were the hands digging up the necklace? That's in the pilot. You know, there are people in the woods, and we don't know how they got there or why they're there or what they're doing. Maybe it's a woodsman. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Man, if I could go back a couple months ago, I could ask Scott Ryan, say, when you talk to Ray Wise, ask him about (laughs) it. Yeah, Yeah, it would have been a good question. Uh, (laughs) The Blue Rose magazine, but you can at least, it's still a good interview. I did, I don't know why, but I always thought it was Bernard Renault in the woods. Mm. Um, Maybe because when he's killed, it's Leo's in the same spot when he shows the body. He meets with Ben and he that's says, oh, "That's a good point." Yeah, I don't, 
even though I have no real reason to think that, I just kind of always thought it was him. That's probably the most logical answer. It is really, a good one, if, yeah. you know, if you had to sum it up. Do we have any final thoughts about episode two? I like the subtlety of the televised version. And we've talked a lot about the exposition that was removed from the script. I like that. We see that subtlety also in very small elements. The Donna and James scene, which I quite like, where they're seated in that couch. In the script, they mention Laura, but they talk more about themselves in, in, in the televised version. And then we have Laura Palmer's theme instead, a sort of subtly reminding us of Laura. That's a, that's a subtle move where we are introduced to Laura through the music and they talk about their uh, potential love relationship and we sort of remove some of the dialogue. And that, I suppose, is what I like so much about the televised version of this as opposed to the scripted version is that a lot of unnecessary exposition is removed. A lot of the things that would make it flat or tell us directly what we're supposed to think is removed and surreal elements and moods are introduced into it that sort of just heighten everything. Just altogether a great episode. I think when I was rewatching it, I was thinking about season three a lot, the Pennsylvania 65,000 scene. I kept trying to envision it being Zhao Day and Bob, really, not Leland and Sarah and trying to kind of wrap my mind around how everything kind of changed now with what we were given in season three. It kind of makes episode two feel like a little more important in a way. There's a lot to think about and digest as far as everything in season three is concerned, but it definitely seems like a hugely important scene, not only in the original, but given everything we know now. It is one of my favorite uh, episodes of the entire narrative. Um, and it is one I could watch over and over again. I really do like watching it. We didn't mention, but I, I think in the dream is the first time we hear Bob speak and mm. we kind of get a sense that there's this menacing figure. I think we've seen an image of him in, in the previous episode, but this is where we, he sort of becomes a character. And of course, Bob will remain a critical piece of the story as well. I have vivid memories of Bob crouching there and saying, you may think I've gone insane, but I promise I will kill again. That boy, did that ever resonate and, and was really scary. Some of the fear that's going to pervade Twin Peaks comes from this episode. Andreas, do you want to share with us what you're working on, what you're up to, and let people know how they can follow you? People can find me on Facebook or Twitter. Not that I tweet that much, actually, but uh, hoping to finish a book these days on David Lynch. It's called The the Art of Paradox. It's sort of a, an analysis of his different audiovisual works from his uh, commercials and uh, to his uh, short films and, and his concert movies and his feature-length films, uh, looking at sort of the ambiguities and paradoxes in his work. And it's also based on interviews with people from his different productions. And then I'm working on a book I've been working on for quite some time with a Danish sound designer about sound design. There's also a little bit of David Lynch in that one. So, yeah, that's I suppose that's what I'm doing these days. Well, I just finished doing a bunch of uh, character essays for episode seven. I mean, excuse me, <laughs> issue seven of <laughs> Rose Magazine. And uh, I do plan on updating my blog a bit more this summer, but I have kind of dropped the ball a little bit this year. So, But mostly that's 
what I'm doing right now. I did the Blue Rose and uh, whatever comes to my mind and I'll write some stuff and hopefully be posting some new things this summer. Issue six of the Blue Rose got a couple of small pieces in there. The one I mentioned earlier is a very short, short article about the Palmer house as a haunted house and I'm kind of happy with with how that turned out. Uh, Maya's underselling herself. She did some great work for issue seven uh, in the Blue Rose. Just wrote about some difficult characters to you know sort of get your hands around. So uh, thanks, Maya, for everything you did on that issue. Thank you, John. Well, thank you, everyone, for, for doing this show. This yeah, was a, a good one. Uh, yeah, I've got, like, the A-team here. Like, these guys are great. You guys know your stuff. You guys are wonderful, and it was good to talk about episode two, and I, I just enjoyed it. I hope you guys will come back again for another episode sometime. Absolutely. Anytime. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Great talking with everyone. For God's sake, listen to reason. Reason, Chet? Since when have I ever needed a reason to do anything? But Jared's your father. And Jade's my sister. And Jade's my wife. I'm sorry. But Emerald, you know your father loves you. He loves you both. Well, with all his financial difficulties, and he's been out of the hospital less than a week. Does that mean I'm supposed to suffer too? For God's sake, his pains are real. And you shouldn't have talked to Jade that way when she was with him in the hospital. Jade, Jade, Jade. Everyone's worried about Jade. It's because people care about her. Because she's a kind and loving person. Not like... Not like me? There was a time when you wanted my love, Chet. You want like nothing else in this world. Our marriage is in the past. Experience is a great and bitter teacher. So is money. Chet, you're a fool. And Jade's a fool. But my father's the biggest fool of all. So what does that make me? So our Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the book, is currently out at bluerosemag.com. It is $19.99, so get your copy today as supplies are very limited and will be running out very soon. So if you haven't got your copy today, go to bluerosemag.com today. Thank you for your interest and for your enthusiasm and, and keeping Twin Peaks alive.